This is the Education Gadfly Show. And a part of me was like, should I lie to my colleagues? <laughs> was some elaborate reason why I missed the train? I'm like, what does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. Please join my co-host for the week, the Tanya Harding of Education Reform, Alyssa Schwank. Hey, Mike. Uh, so, Tanya Harding, <laughs> what, there's, a, there's a movie about this? Yes, and you know, I'm going to uh, squash two 2017, gosh, uh, memes together and say hashtag justice for Tanya. I'm pretty excited about this movie. <laughs> okay, well, now please join us in welcoming our special guest for this week, Elisa Villanueva Beard, who is the CEO of Teach for America and is calling in remotely to our studio. Elisa, welcome, welcome. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. Excited to have you join us. Do do you remember the whole Tanya Harding, uh, Nancy Kerrigan affair? I certainly do. I was I was younger then. I thought you were somehow going to call me Tanya Harding. I was sort of thrown off a bit. Yeah, yeah, I thought about that. That, that seemed unfair. I, I get Tanya. Yeah. It's easier to throw Alyssa under the bus on that one. Well, hey. Thanks, Mike. We are so glad to have you here. Let's go ahead and do our Ed Reform update. So, yes, so Elisa, we wanted to have you on because there has been something of a debate in recent uh, weeks and months about Teach for America. Uh, We've been writing about this some. There's been some articles in the Weekly Standard and some other conservative outlets expressing concern that Teach for America is in some ways lurching to the left uh, and whether or not this is uh, something we need to pay attention to and maybe be worried about. Uh, We wanted to get you on and and ask you about that yourself. So, uh, let me just start with this. Uh, what, What is your understanding of the concerns that some of us conservatives have and and what do you make of them? Yeah, so I'm first of all so glad that you invited me to have this conversation directly Um, and I will say just very clearly um, you know, I've been in this role for two years and at Teach for America we are so focused on ensuring that we are nurturing a broad and diverse coalition. I often say that I think we've got to be able to reach every dinner table in America Mm -hmm. in order to have true systemic change and it's what I believe in at TFA I mean we're now 56,000 strong Mm -hmm. with incredible diversity and we have to nurture that diversity and so the direct answer to your question is we're a nonpartisan organization and we are not lurching one way or the other we make Mm -hmm. decisions based on what we've learned is best for kids on equity and access and opportunity and you know and decisions that allow us to deliver on our mission All right. well let me let me get into some of what I I view as, as some of the concerns that are out there. Okay. Let's say that back in the day, Teach for America was very much single-mindedly focused on helping uh, your recruits, your your new teachers get trained up to go in and have as big an impact in the classroom as possible, and especially an impact on student achievement. You know, how are they mm-hmm. going to get in into these classrooms and help kids make progress in reading and writing and math and, and the other subjects that they were teaching? Uh, maybe in more recent years, we've, you know, perhaps that's broadened a bit to also talk about non-cognitive skills, social emotional skills that we know mm-hmm. are going to help uh, kids uh, be prepared for success down the road and post-secondary education and careers. Um, there's been a sense that that uh, focus has now been diluted a bit, little bit because some of the training, uh, by some accounts, a lot of the training is now more focused on, quote, social justice, on this idea uh, that, 
you know, teaching kids about the inequities in our society. And I guess as a, you know, as a conservative, I would say, look, I, I believe, you know, I, I, of course that we know that there's huge inequities in our society, but I also believe in the, in the American dream and believe that the goal of education reform is to help kids prepare to be successful, you know, in, in the system we've got, uh, is not to try to train up, you know, revolutionaries to try to overthrow the, the system and the social order. I mean, does that resonate? I mean, do you, we, we, do you worry that some of the social justice stuff ends up making it sound like, uh, you know, we're, we're not sure if kids are going to be able to climb the ladder, the upward mobility, even if they get the skills they need. Is, does this compute? Yeah, I mean, what I would say is we have always, we've had the same mission for 27 years. Mm-hmm. And I think just to be clear, you know, which has always been to go out and find, develop and support a diverse network of leaders who are going to expand opportunities for children. Um, and we know that has to happen from classrooms and schools and every sector and field that shapes the broader systems in which schools operate. And we've always believed that. And our, you know, what we, we take a lot of note on just learning and looking at what is actually working and what is providing kids with better and more opportunities and mobility and ability to um, get out of the cycle of poverty. And we are 100% focused on academic achievement. That is, of course, just so critical. High expectations, like all of that is, you know, is in the DNA of of (laughs) who we are and what we believe. We also know that it's not sufficient. And to your point of like the need to focus on non-cognitive skills and social and emotional learning, learning and ensuring kids um, are really, um, you know, where we're affirming kids place and community is really important. And I do and we believe that is not in conflict with high expectations and um, Mm -hmm. academic results. And so um, we're focused on broader outcomes, but student achievement is central to that. And so I would just say, I call it more responsible and more holistic. As we learn more, we got to, you know, we got to adapt and ensure that we're most responsibly doing our work. Can I jump in here? Oh, you yeah. can. You know, as as I as I uh, <laughs> told, totally. Uh, you know, as as many of our listeners know, T- Alyssa is a proud a former a member of Teach for America, Her an and alumnus, and I'm a lot. I'm an yes, alum. You're never not a member. And uh, still yeah, a part of the cult. Uh, so yes, yeah, she's. Uh, go ahead. You push back on me too, Alyssa. <laughs> yeah. No, I was wondering how long it was going to take you to get a Kool Aid joke in there. Um, I mean, I think TFA and speaking as a. I used to say a recent alum. Now I don't think I'm recent anymore. It's been almost eight years. Um, TFA is almost sort of a Rorschach test in the education reform debate. A lot of what you think gets projected onto TFA because it's such a huge part of the education reform landscape. And it's been so transformational, I think, in only like 27, mm-hmm. I'm going to get this right. Yes, years. that's right. Aha, I was paying attention at mm-hmm. Summit. Um, and I think I... I'm, again, 100% unbiased in terms of the potential of the people who go through TFA and Mm -hmm. the organization. And I firmly believe that whatever comes next in education will be done with help and support and through TFA alums. Like, Mm -hmm. I just know too many of them who are too good at what they do and too Mm -hmm. thoughtful and too smart to not have any huge faith in that. That being said, kind of these bigger, broader controversies that you reference that kind of percolate around TFA, I think that's very sometimes that's at one level. And then there's a level of like what's happening with TFA teachers in the classrooms and the classrooms I visit, the classrooms I taught in, the classrooms Mm -hmm. my friends taught in, like they're working every day for their kids and to make sure that their kids are getting better opportunities, whatever those opportunities look like than they may have had 5, 10, 20 years ago. So Mm -hmm. no matter what that big debate looks like, and we can have this 
big debate about like which way the organization is going and mm. which way people think the organization is going. Like the fact of the matter is there's still thousands of teachers in the classrooms every day mm. working towards those things for their students and really putting in the work, which I think sometimes gets overlooked. And but but when you think about the training itself for teachers, I mean this is where some of the reporting has come through, such as the Weekly Standard article, was that it it felt like, you know, if you were a conservative, uh, you weren't going to feel very comfortable there uh, or you were going to feel, uh, you know, like you're being indoctrinated or that there's a certain way to think on these issues. So, for example, let's get specific. A lot of us conservatives think that uh, some of the things that Ta-Nehisi Coates has been writing has been incredibly bleak about America, you know, making this argument that America is sort of inherently racist and that that explains so much of what's happening in our society, you know, that that is not a terribly balanced way to look at uh, the things that are happening. Uh, Yet, if that is the message that is given to young people, either whether it's in ed school, which has sent that message in a lot of ed schools for many years, uh, or now whether it's Teach for America, that in the same way, it's it's kind of a lot of groupthink. So what do you say to that? Elisa, I mean, do you, do you think that, that conservatives, if, if you've got 22-year-old conservatives coming in to teach for America, that they're going to, uh, are they going to feel like they're being uh, indoctrinated at the trainings? Is that, is that just, I mean, are we just missing the point here? Where, where's the disconnect here? Because everything you've said so far is, is great. I mean, it sounds totally reasonable, but then we read these stories about some of the stuff that goes on uh, and it just feels, uh, feels like there is an ideological, you know, factor here that, uh, that's happening. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the big things I've done over the last year is ensure, you know, you know that we grew really fast. And then, you know, we've been in this reinventing ourselves, decentralized quite a bit after being very centralized. And one of the clear needs we had over the last year was ensuring that we were getting really clearly articulating what is TFA and what do we do? And we created what we call this foundations document, which Mm -hmm. are the core tenets of Teach for America, our core values and our commitment to diversity equity and inclusiveness um, and are really aligning everything against that um, and we're you know we have 53 different communities that we serve I have a staff of 1800 core and alumni base of 56,000 and so we're working really hard to just be strategic ensure strategic clarity and alignment mm-hmm. um, and what I would say to you know in terms of our intent and what we're working to do at the training sites is do what I just said which is ensure that we are nurturing a broad and diverse coalition to be able to succeed with children and go out in the world to contribute forever. Um, And so that is the alignment that we're seeking to ensure that we are delivering on every day. And so, I mean, we don't, we we tell the truth at Teach for America. We're clear about what we've learned and don't shy away from, you know, examining difficult conversations. Um, But we are working to really create a community and a culture by which, you know, diversity of thought is a critical element to ensuring that we're able to, you know, do our best work. We know that innovation and progress is going to happen faster and better when we're able to really nurture the diversity of our community. Um, and so that is what we are doing. And, and hopefully, you know, and, and we're, we are winning at Southern schools, by the way. I mean, we have a good number of, um, you know, core members coming to us from Alabama, from Texas A&M, from, you know, um, other s- Southern universities that are so central to the contribution for TFA. And so we're, we're, we're working really hard to make sure that we are continuing to do that effectively. No, it's great. I'm glad to hear you say that diversity of thought is, is an important value as well. 
and as you said at the beginning, to, to keep the focus on boosting student achievement, which Teach for America has been about for so many years and has shown such great, uh, great results. Done really great things with. All right. Well, that <laughs> yeah. is all. Can I, can, I, oh, yep. can, I, can I say one last thing sure. that I think yep. is important to just get Please. in there that um, I do think is one of the things that I hear a lot that I think people are worried about or trying to figure out what we mean. And it's this whole point on, you know, I, I often get asked about identity politics or culturally responsible responsive teaching or what all this is. And I think people um, have a misunderstanding of this. I often hear people say things like, you know, we're focused on all the non-cognitive affirming identity and all of these things, which people think, you know, is generally probably okay, but that it's at the exclusion of rigor, rigorous standards and, you know, an academic achievement. And the, the anchor to culturally responsive teaching or pedagogy is high expectations and rigor. And it doesn't mean you don't teach Shakespeare or Hamlet. It, it it means that you're just the way you teach is is relevant to kids. It's affirming kids' own history and identity while also ensuring that they're getting you know the rigor of education they need to be successful mm-hmm. in our country. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, good. Well, well said. Thank you again, Elisa. We now are ready for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Amber, uh, a little, a little late today. What happened? <laughs> oh, oh wow, you're really just I know, calling her already out there. Like getting me out there. I don't know. Does everybody have like 15 alarms set on their cell phone? Yes, yeah. absolutely. And then I hit the one below the one I should have hit because I didn't go to bed till like 12:30 last night, so I was already kind of in a stupor. And then I woke up and I'm like. <laughs> holy crap, it's an hour late that I'm supposed to be and you go in complete panic mode. And a part of me was like, should I lie to my colleagues and come up with some elaborate reason why I missed the train? I'm like, no, I can't do it. I gotta fess up. We've all done it. Hello. Yes, absolutely. We've all done it. And Amber, who has to take the train all the way from Richmond. That's right. So this is like, and it's not like those trains happen all the time. No, but can I tell you how much better I feel today after an hour more sleep? I'm like, I'm just so energetic. Well, can I say, I forget if I've, I've said this on the show, but we we recently watched Home Alone in our house, which, oh. by the way, great movie to watch with kids. I can see right? both your kids loving oh that Oh my God, movie. it's hilarious. <laughs> but I had to explain the idea. You know, the whole premise uh, or what part of the premise is that this family is, you know, going to have this trip to France and they oversleep because the power goes out. And I had to explain why the power going out would lead you to missing your alarm. Like, because alarm, but we just don't have alarms. There was one an of, alarm oh, clock right. plugged in. Yes, yes. One of my favorite things to do is to watch old TV shows and figure out how the plots, like, just would not be the same yeah. with oh, actual modern technology. Uh, all right. So what you got for yeah, us? Right. Well-rested, Amber. Well-rested. Uh, this week, we've got a new report from Georgetown Center on Education and the Workforce called Good Jobs That Pay Without a B.A. Catchy. Mm-hmm. All right. It examines the changes in the job market from 1991 to 2015, specifically the changes in the number of good jobs without a B.A. nationally and by state. Defining a good job is subjective, of course. Mm-hmm. Here, they define define it as 35000 minimum for those under the age of 45, which is about $17 an hour for a full-time job, and 45000 minimum for those workers age 45 and older, mm. which is about 22 an hour for a full-time mm. job. In 2015, they say these good jobs have median earnings of 55000 uh, annually. And let me just quickly sure. point out, because I've been obsessed with this lately, okay. you know, the cost of living question, yes, which is yes. that, okay, 
those of us living in Washington, or maybe those of you out there on the coast or in some expensive cities, those figures may sound rather modest. Right. But we have to remember that in most of the country, you can actually live pretty well on those, especially if you double those salaries. If you got two earners in the family, you're talking about, uh, you know, quite a nice money. And you'll be interested. I didn't have time in the minute for this, but you'll be interested in the table in the report that actually shows the buying power. Oh, it does. For that. And and look at DC, my negative 17, not much buying power in (laughs) DC. Yeah. More Uh, buying power in Alabama. That's right. Anywho, I digress. Uh, Report uses current population survey data from 1992, 2016. Already said that. This is data put out by the Census Bureau. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they look for age 25 to 64, those workers in particular. Key findings and looking at the breakdown of good jobs by BA or no BA, nationally, 55% of workers with a good job have at least a BA degree. That means, obviously, 45% of the non-BA holders also have a good job. Mm -hmm. In terms of how big the non-BA workforce is, what percentage of workers do you think do not have a BA? Sorry, rephrase that question. Percentage of all workers who do not have a BA. Mm -hmm. Not just those with good jobs. That's right. Uh, 50%? 70%. 61. You guys are pretty good. 61? Of that percentage, 40%, your question, Mm -hmm. have a good job. Okay. Okay? In terms of the earnings distribution of non-BA jobs nationally, 54% earn 55 or higher. 27% 27% earn between 45 and 55, and 19% earn between 35 and 45. Overall, the share of good jobs for workers, again, without BAs, declined from about 60% of workers in 1991 to 45% in 2015. But always the case when you dig down into states, the variation is all over the map. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, 34 states, mostly in the South and the West, added good jobs for workers without BAs over the nearly 25 years covered by the study. Mm-hmm. 16 states plus D.C. had fewer good jobs for workers without BAs. Probably, you know, again, we got to think about the definition. Um, these states were primarily in the Northeast and Midwest, and they were hard hit by the manufacturing declines. Mm-hmm. Uh, nationally, blue-collar jobs are on the decline in manufacturing, but this was interesting. In 38 states, non-manufacturing blue-collar jobs are on the increase. So, like, Specifically, hospitality? I guess. Guess mm-hmm. what the big ones are. Uh, but healthcare. Uh, and, yep. Construction. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sorry, I'm doing truck driving. Transportation. <laughs> that is short-lived. Okay. <laughs> right. Uh, manufacturing Until, yeah. jobs have been increasingly replaced by skilled service jobs, such as health services, mm-hmm. financial services. Only two states and D.C. saw uh, significant loss of percentages in good jobs in both the blue-collar and the skilled services I just told you about. Huh. Um, yeah. What were the and other two states? Massachusetts and New York. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's and then finally, uh, well, this isn't finally, but the top five non-BA good job occupations. Non-BA good job. Non-BA good job occupations. Construction. That's in there. Good job. Healthcare. Uh, that's in there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm, sales and office related. Okay. Uh, and management financial operations. I'm not so sure what you do in financial operations with yeah. a with an associate uh-huh. degree, but you yeah. do something. Yeah. Um, good well, jobs held maybe. by, not surprising, high school graduates have declined over the period. In fact, there was an eight percentage point decline nationally in the share of non-BA good jobs held by high school graduates Mm. and a nine percentage point increase in the share of associate's degree holders who had good jobs. Mm. Mm. Um, That can go on, but anyway, good jobs tend to be concentrated in the most populated states. California, Texas, Florida account for 26% of all good jobs, again, without that higher degree. But when you start digging in the states, which of course I did, um, Wyoming is, you know, 
obviously not too many people in Wyoming, but 62% of workers without BAs have good jobs there. Ranchers. I think the bottom line is that, you know, as I'm looking through all this and reading some of this information, um, you see that the prospects for those folks without a BA are pretty um, good if they're looking towards these skilled services industries. Those are the ones that tend to be replacing manufacturing. Um, But even there, you mean, you need some education, right? These are associate degrees. And again, those of us in the bubble... Uh, where we live, what we see is you have to have a BA to have a decent job, mm-hmm. by and large, right? And so we f- we think that's the case everywhere. It's not, yeah, right? And and outside the bubble, uh, that you can live pretty well without a BA, which means, uh, by the way, if you tell people out there, especially in Trump country, that uh, you know, well, you might earn a good salary, but you're not going to get as much respect from us if you don't have a college education, right. you know, especially if you didn't go to a, the right college. Well, they're going to be mad about that. <laughs> right. and they should be. How many people do you what, know that are driving out to Trump country, though, to say those words? I think people feel that. Yeah. I think that that is, you know, that, yeah. that a lot of what we're seeing in our politics today is fe- people feeling disrespected. Mm-hmm. Um, and it used to be that you one way you earned respect in our capitalist society was by earning a good living. Mm. Uh, wow. And there are people who are doing that even without that college education. And, and we need to keep that in mind. Yeah, that's right. And for, I don't know about you guys, but for the young people in my life, I'm often telling them, you know, if you, if those who just don't want to go to college, aren't going to go for whatever, mm-hmm. you know, get, go the two year. Because yeah. I mean, here you see that it does give you yeah. considerable bang for your buck. I think yeah. before we always saw, thought that the two year had to lead to the four year, mm-hmm. you know, it was just that launching stepping stone. But here, at least we see if you stop at that associate's degree, you know, you're going to have much more marketability than just the high school degree. Yeah. Provided, of course, that that high school degree has taught you the basics, like the reading, the well, writing, right. the arithmetic. Right. And that is, again, that doesn't make our job in K-12 education right. any easier because we're not getting ready, people ready for that either. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Amber. Great yes, stuff. Uh, enjoy that uh, that extra hour. Today. <laughs> All right. Till next week. I'm Alyssa Schwank. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing up. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.